you know, the pangolin is, it's the underdog of the animal world, right? It's this completely gentle, harmless animal. It's really harmless to humans, but they're being just decimated by people. So I think people really feel that vulnerability for them and feel that compassion for them. Welcome to another episode of Animalia's podcast, where every week we talk about various topics uh, in wildlife conservation, climate change, and the environment. And today we are talking to Paul Thompson from Save Pangolins to unlock the mystery behind this uh, incredible animal um, that does not get the notoriety or sort of the, the public uh, recognition yet is the most trafficked uh, wildlife in the world. Uh, I'm James. I'm Annalie. And I'm Nare. And we are here with Paul. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Do you want to uh, start by just giving a, a quick introduction of yourself and your work? Sure. Thanks so much uh, for having me on today. Um, I'm the executive director and co-founder of a conservation organization called Save Pangolins. And in that role, we uh, are supporting pangolin conservation around the world and trying to raise awareness about this little-known, bizarre, and lovable little animal. Awesome. And how long have you been uh, working with pangolins and working in conservation, Paul? So about 12 years ago, in fact, was the first time I learned about pangolins. And when I learned about them, uh, I think like most people, I fell in love with them immediately. And as soon as I fell in love with them, I started learning about the threats facing them and sort of how, how severely they were being trafficked. And this was, you know, 12 years ago. Um, and it was pretty alarming to me that so few people even knew what a pangolin was. So that's when I decided to do, do something about it. And um, at the time, I was working in wildlife conservation on a, another uh, wildlife project. But in my free time, I just started uh, building some awareness and, and creating some campaigns to, to help people uh, learn about pangolins. Awesome. Uh, Annalie and Nari, what, do you remember your sort of uh, the first time you discovered what a pangolin was? Uh, I'm curious and if you can think back to that and what your reaction was. For me, it was when James, you you were pitching it for a potential shirt, and you showed us a picture of it, and automatically, like it looked like a Pokemon. It was really really cool. Mine is um, embarrassingly late as well because it's uh, when you already had the shirt, and um, I wanted to get one of the Animalia shirts, and you said, "Look at the pangolin." I think um, you are very much like a pangolin in your character. So I bought the shirt and then I've Googled the animal and uh, yeah, it's, it's incredible. They look very, very cool. And I love my, uh, my t-shirt. It's, it's my favorite. Well, I think the fact that so many of us do discover pangolins uh, so late compared to other forms of wildlife is a, is sort of a, a big theme of what we want to talk about today. Uh, Paul, what, what was it about the pangolin when you said you fell in love, sort of love at first sight? What was it about the pangolin that you fell in love with, if you can, if you can recall that for yourself? So I remember thinking at the time, like, how can I have lived my life 
to this point without knowing that we share the planet with what seems to be like a living Pokemon or a little dragon. Uh, it was just, I was kind of blown away by how, how unique they are, how bizarre they are. Like here is a, a mammal, right? So a warm blooded animal that is in fact covered in scales like a reptile. Um, it's the only animal to be covered in in scales, or sorry, only mammal to be covered in scales, and I I just thought this thing is so cool, and and at the same time it's fascinating. It has these strange traits, right? It doesn't have any teeth. It has this super long tongue. It only eats insects, and on top of that, it's steeped in mystery. People don't know much about it. Biologists have only been studying it for. Um, the last couple of decades, and and there's still so many questions remaining. So there was a lot of mystery around it, and then a lot of charisma. It just sort of struck me as this lovable underdog um, that that was vulnerable and and facing severe threats, and nobody was really doing anything about it. So that's when I I was inspired to to jump in and see what I could do. How would you describe the sort of behavioral characteristics of a pangolin for, for those that have never, um, you know, never seen one, but you know, we don't, you don't even see them often on wildlife documentaries or, That's right. you know, the planet earth of the world. So there, there really are a mystery, but how would you describe their sort of behavioral traits to somebody that, you know, doesn't know what a pangolin is? Right. So yeah, if you're new to a pangolin, you can picture a, a, anteater meets an armadillo type animal. So it's a small kind of raccoon sized animal um, that is covered in scales, these sort of plate-like pieces of armor. Um, It has this sort of long conical head, a long tail that in some species is prehensile, meaning it can curl around a tree branch, um, almost like a fifth appendage. Um, And Part of the reason they're so mysterious is because their their behavior is is rather mysterious. Generally, they're solitary, so they live alone until they meet up to mate. Um, they are slow to grow and reproduce. When they do reproduce, they only have one baby. And this is something I love: is that uh, we named uh, babies pups. So there's a little pangolin pup that uh, is born live. And then when it is born, it, it goes up onto the base of the mom's tail and sort of rides around on the mom's back as she cares for it. And then uh, another really interesting aspect of their behavior is, and it's a defining characteristic, is that when pangolins feel threatened, they roll up into a ball. Uh, so they sort of wrap themselves up and and on the exterior they're completely surrounded by these tough scales and that makes them really well protected protected among natural or from natural predators like hyenas or lions um, even even large snakes or crocodiles so yeah they they're they're full of full of cool things and and we can talk a little bit more later about the fact that curling up into a ball like that is also something that makes them kind of easy pickings for, for poachers. Can you give us a sense of the scale of pangolin trafficking today and just on a, you know, annualized or monthly or weekly basis? Uh, it's the most trafficked, uh, non-human animal in the world. Uh, can you, can you help our, our audience understand the scale of that today? 
Sure. So, so this is one of the amazing things about penguins, right? Is that most people have never heard of them, but they are the most illegally trafficked wild mammal in the world. So there's kind of a contradiction there. Like how can this, how can an animal that most people have never heard of be trafficked in such high volume? So first it's important to, to answer the question, like, why are they trafficked? Why are they in, in demand? Um, so briefly, uh, pangolins are sought for their meat and also their scales. So the scales, you know, their defining characteristic is also the thing that makes them so vulnerable. Their meat is used, um, is consumed as kind of, you know, normal bushmeat consumption, everyday type of food consumption in parts of Africa. And then it's considered more of a, a luxury good in parts of Asia. And then their scales are ground up and used in various traditional medicines. So they're a, a significant ingredient in some traditional Chinese medicine to, to treat a variety of ailments. And um, it's this that makes them traded or trafficked in such high numbers. So to kind of put a put an illustration on that, we know that since... 2016, at least half a million pangolins have been illegally trafficked. So that's just in the last three to four years, half a million pangolins have been poached from the wild and trafficked. And that's based on seizure data, which means those are only the pangolins that have been caught, right? The, the attempted pangolin smuggling that has been busted. So we assume that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, another example, in, in 2019, just last year, there were 10 multi-ton mega shipments of pangolin scales. So in Singapore, I think it was in July or in April, in one week, two of the largest ever seizures of pangolin scales happened within the span of one week. So each one was 13 tons. So picture a container, a shipping container, jam packed with bags of pangolin scales. And so if you do the math based on the weight of those scales and you figure out how many scales an average pangolin has, that could represent one, one container, shipping container, could have had 33,000 dead pangolins stuffed into it. So that kind of gives an illustration of the magnitude of this thing. This has been this has been happening for a long time. It's been happening alongside uh, trafficking of other illegal wildlife products like elephant ivory and rhino horn, but it's sort of been the silent one. It's the one that has gone most under the radar because of this huge problem around the lack of awareness around pangolins that's devastating though why is it uh paul sort of the the scales why what are they being used for today um and uh what what, what is that commercial value uh that's, that's sort of driving the pangolin market yeah so the pangolin scales are not made of anything magical or truly medicinal they're made of keratin, which is a protein that makes up things like your human fingernail, right? So there have been no studies done 
that have proven medicinal effectiveness of pangolin scales. Nevertheless, they are an ingredient in something like 60 plus traditional Chinese medicines. So also it's not used as a medicine for one specific thing, which might you know mean that they're not in high demand, but pangolin scales are considered uh, effective to treat a number of different ailments. And that kind of makes them in greater demand by consumers of, of traditional Chinese medicine. So as an example, um, I've heard that pangolin scales can be used to treat arthritis, um, circulation issues, uh, lactation issues, and even more recently, um, some reports that pangolin scales are advertised to treat cancer. Um, so the fact that there's kind of this like wide swath of, of potential uses for pangolin scales is something that puts them in high demand. It's also worth noting that in China, it is illegal to buy and sell pangolin meat, however, or live pangolin. However, the Chinese government still allows the use of pangolin scales in traditional Chinese medicine. So that's a huge problem and something that we would really like to see the government of China stop allowing. And given given that it's 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 keratin, right? It doesn't have any medicinal um, sort of scientific uh, proven scientific properties or benefits to it from a medicinal standpoint. Is that all just a placebo effect that's you know kind of happening for people in terms of you know selling you know sort of the the snake oil that um, you know it's it's convincing your mind that it's working and therefore it's doing something for you, or is it like? You know, if, if you were to talk to somebody who is using the the products made from pangolin scales for medicinal purposes, what do you what do you think they would say? Like, um, just curious on like what's what's happening on that front and why the the sort of falsities haven't been exposed. Um, is it a lack of education? Is it is it brainwashing? Is it or, or, you know, is there some, is, is there a possibility that there's, there's some benefit and if it is, maybe it's just a placebo effect or what, what are your thoughts on that? So traditional Chinese medicine, of course, has been used and practiced for thousands of years. So these are deeply held cultural beliefs and practices. So if your mother used pangolin scales to treat an ailment and your grandparents before her did the same thing, I think you're more likely inclined to give it a shot because um, it's, it's, it's a very strongly held practice. Um, and I think what, what's important is, is not necessarily what Western science says about its effectiveness, but what the, the practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine believes in himself or herself, right? If she is going to consume something to, to treat an ailment. And if they derive some kind of benefit from that, then it doesn't matter whether some science paper says that there's no medicinal benefits or not. It's more the power of that belief. And I think that there's a lot of science coming out now that uh, touches on a lot of, of 
real tangible significant benefits of of traditional Chinese medicine. So I'm very reluctant to sort of just dismiss traditional Chinese medicine outright. I think that's not the way to go. I think more importantly is to say, look, if you are trying to treat arthritis or circulation issues, there are other sustainable alternatives. And that's what we want to encourage people to do. Rather than shame them for using traditional Chinese medicine, let's find sustainable alternatives that they can use, whether it's herbs or roots or some other plant product, and not consume an endangered species to the point of extinction. So, Paul, switching gears a little bit in towards the, the the kind of the mystery of pangolins and why, um, you know, they aren't so the issue is not you know, very well known amongst sort of mass society, even amongst people that are, you know, wildlife enthusiasts, um, such as, you know, ourselves, like, you know, we mentioned that, you know, we discovered pangolins later in life in myself as well. I didn't discover for a few years ago yet. I, I, I grew up knowing, knowing full well about the poaching of rhinos and elephants and, you know, other, other animals, um, that are heavily trafficked and poached. What, why do you think that is the case for pangolins? Like why do, what is it about pangolins that have, have not, you know, allowed them to be ingrained in our culture and, and the way some of these other heavily poached and trafficked animals are? Is, is, it, is it their reclusive nature? Uh, is it, you know, sort of the limited presence in our, you know, kind of public captivity such as zoos and, um, you know, uh, that, that sort of play into the fact that people don't grow up knowing about pangolins? Why aren't they covered more in you know, some of the, you know, larger nature, nature, um, documentaries and things like that. What, what is it about pangolins that sort of keeps them in the shadows? I love this, this question. Uh, it's something I always ask and it's, it's always fascinating to me because this is also like really, really in my interest, right. As is I'm, I'm trying to create that awareness, especially here in, in, in North America, um, I'm an American, right? So I don't live in a place where there are pangolins. So how I can really help the issues is by supporting people who are doing the work on the front lines and, and then also building support um, within folks here in the U.S. like you guys. Um, it's so interesting to me that I, I think it's kind of cool that here we are in 2020 and there's still this animal out there that most people don't know about. I think it speaks to sort of some of the some of the mysteries of of the natural world that we we haven't yet uncovered. Um, I do think that there are a couple of factors that have led to the reason for penguins being quite obscure. I mean, to this day, people I say that I work with penguins, and people are like penguins. Like <laughs> I was thinking, I'm talking about penguins. Yeah. Um, but I think penguins are, they are mysterious. They're extremely difficult to see in the wild. So how many people do you know who have actually seen a penguin in the wild or even alive? Very few. I've been working with penguins for 12 years and I have not seen many live penguins. Um, I know some people that have been working in, in the bush in Africa for decades and have still have never come across a wild penguin. They're very elusive. They're very difficult to see. And then I think another big reason, especially in America, why people don't know about them is because they're not 
until just recently, they are not in popular media. You don't see them in children's books, in animated movies, as as stuffed toys. They're not there yet. Um, what's cool is it's kind of changing now, but for up until now, it hasn't been the case. And then you've got to ask, okay, well, why aren't they in you know, children's books and in the movies and things like that. And I think part of the reason is this is, this is up for debate, but one, one possibility is that we don't have them in zoos. So people aren't seeing them or becoming aware of them at an early age. Um, and, you know, there's many reasons why they're not in zoos. They're very, very difficult to keep in captivity. Um, and so, yeah, so I think a combination of factors means that people just haven't, like, they haven't had pangolins in front of their eyeballs like we have had, you know, elephants and tigers and kind of some of the more what we call charismatic megafauna, right? The big, cuddly, cute ones, pandas and elephants and things. Um, I think pangolins are super charismatic, uh, but I'm a little biased. <laughs> And what are the some of the things that um, are being done to make them more mainstream, like to get the children learn about them since early age? Like, what are the efforts that are happening right now that you're seeing? So it's interesting. I've actually written a paper on this topic, sort of the rise of fame for the penguin over the last 10 years, um, and looked at things like online traffic and and Google search words and and Wikipedia page views. And there have been a few things that sort of helped give pangolins an extra boost in public awareness. Um, some of them are around uh, more policy changes. So there was a big um, international agreement at the end of 2016, where all countries declared pangolins illegal to uh, commercially trade around the world. So in other words, countries came together and said, we will no longer um, allow the commercial trade of pangolins. And that uh, made a lot of headlines. So I think that was one area where pangolins became aware. Another one is, is uh, you've probably heard of these World Animal Days. You know, there's World Lion Day, World Elephant Day, things like that. Well, um, we created World Pangolin Day um, back in 2012. And that was an opportunity for people working in pangolin conservation to sort of sound the alarm that these, these guys are out there. Um, su surprisingly, and this is, this was a fun one that I discovered was, was, uh, in 2017, Google did a Valentine's day doodle featuring a pangolin. And it was this super charming little, kind of video game animation featuring two pangolins. And that just was a huge spike in people searching Google for pangolins. Like all of a sudden everyone was like, what is this pangolin? It's adorable. And they started searching. So sort of like these little moments like that over time have helped boost pangolin awareness. Um, I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see, there have been some celebrity um, spokespeople for penguins, like Jackie Chan is probably the biggest one. Um, and I, I'd love to see some more, more celebrities get on, on board with helping raise awareness and, and build support for penguins. Popular culture is really important in, in issues like this, especially to get like, uh, to get it mainstream and to make people care 
more. So yeah, that's interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you guys, you're, you're an apparel company, right? So you're making cool designs of pangolins that go on a, a t-shirt, which can be like a walking billboard. And there's something so wonderful about the pangolin that lends itself well to art and design. And um, I think the, you know, the more shirts and designs people see out there, the more it's going to help. So thanks for doing that. <laughs> what, what are um, like, let's, Think about writing a Pangolin's children book for for a second. Um, what are the sort of uh, traits of a Pangolin that you think would connect with a child or even the child and all of us? Um, you know, think of like, you know, elephants, people talk about their spirituality and, you know, the elephant never forgets and they're, they're sort of the, the herd and the family, um, just as an example, um, you know, lion, it's, it's the sort of prowess and the, the majesty uh, of, of the lion and the, and sort of the way they carry themselves, uh, within a pride. Um, if what, what comes to mind, if, if you're thinking about, you know, okay, now we're bringing the pangolin into pop culture, starting with, um, the youth and starting with, uh, animation, um, you know, what, what are those characteristics that you think would come to define the pangolin, uh, in that way? Yeah, I've, I've, I've really seen that a lot of people resonate with, with pangolins or can, they can relate to it in some way or another. You know, the pangolin is, it's the underdog of the animal world, right? It's this completely gentle, harmless animal. It's really harmless to humans, but they're being just decimated by people. So I think people really feel that vulnerability for them and feel that compassion for them. Um, at the same time, they're kind of like the, 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 you know, the outcast dweeb of, from, from high school, right? They're sort of, they live alone. They're super shy. When they feel threatened, they just sort of roll up into a ball. And I think we can all relate to that. Like when we're, when we're feeling down or feeling, feeling threatened we just want to hide sometimes and curl up um so i think there's there's several of these aspects that a lot of people can relate to and and therefore have that affinity for pangolins yeah i have uh i have i have rolled into a ball or two <laughs> in my in my lifetime <laughs> it's exactly it's exactly how you uh, how you introduced a pangolin to me, James, saying uh, it has a few characteristics um, that resonate with you and you think with me too. So, <laughs> okay, <laughs> now I know. <laughs> uh, one one <laughs> one child policy rolling in a ball. There's a lot of interesting things there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it may. <laughs> yeah the pangolin may be my my spirit animal <laughs> spirit, yeah i hear that a lot <laughs> exactly yeah especially in this day and age when we're all dealing with this global covid crisis i think a lot of us just want to curl up into a ball and hide yeah absolutely um and we do actually want to uh you know quickly get to that uh just one more question on um you know uh, the pangolin perception for the for the cultures that um, where pangolins aren't being trafficked and sold um, across you know predominantly Asia and Africa, um, 
what what do you, what is their sort of perception of the pangolin and what does the pangolin mean to them um is it just a form of of medicine or is there you know is there any kind of spiritual aspect that is also associated with it or um you know for, for those cultures where there's much more awareness uh of the of the animal what, what's their perception of it it's really interesting People have different relationships with pangolins in different countries and cultures and regions. Um, and I'm, I'm learning more and more about this every month. Uh, in some places like Cameroon in Central Africa, for example, uh, pangolins are considered a tasty snack. People uh, enjoy eating their meat. It's not considered a delicacy. It's just something that they they eat alongside other wild animals, um, something we call bush meat. So that's so it's neither. And for in places like Central Africa, for so long their scales had zero value, and it was only in the last few years when the international trade in scales became a profitable business did people in Cameroon, for example, start collecting scales and shipping them out of the country. And then if you move over to Zimbabwe in Southern Africa, um, the pangolin is considered a, a very lucky animal. It's often presented to a local um, leader as a, as a gift, as a, a, a point of sort of, a, it's, it's really quite an honor to present pangolin as a gift. So it's considered lucky and, and positive. Um, in other in China, it's as I mentioned earlier. It's considered a, 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 a the meat is considered a delicacy, and then also the scales are used as traditional medicine. So it's for for a lot of people, it's viewed as a commodity. Um, I you know I think that there are different groups, especially younger people in China now, seem to be waking up to the fact that that's driving penguins to extinction. So it's shifting. Uh, their relationship and perception of pangolins a bit more among younger people. Um, but still in other places, uh, pangolins are, are considered, um, I think that in, in some parts of Pakistan, they're considered like a, something to be feared because people are worried that there are, have a, a legend that pangolins go and dig up dead bodies. Um, so I think there's all sorts of really interesting stories and cultural beliefs and, and perceptions around pangolins. Um, it really, it really varies around the world. Interesting. Um, I guess one of the, the, the positive things about the fact that maybe a lot of people don't know about them is that we still have time to shape that narrative for certain countries and certain like populations. So we're definitely like, you know, able to translate that they are mysterious, but they're very valuable as they, they should be for their ecosystems. I love that. I think that's absolutely right. I think that there's definitely still an opportunity to, to you know, take the narrative, um, especially with younger people and especially uh, in countries like the U.S. where people are just learning about penguins. My group, Save Pangolins, we are all about creating pangolin love. We want to inspire people to protect pangolins. Um, we want them to learn about them and find out that they're that they do play a valuable role in their ecosystem. They are 
on the brink of extinction and we it's not too late to turn the tide and, and to help protect them. And in terms of fundraising efforts for this, do you find it easy to, um, you know, to find resources to fund campaigns, marketing for it or anything else? It's, it's challenging. Uh, pangolins, because it's a relatively new movement to protect pangolins, um, there's a lot of groups that are, that are relatively young groups or just starting out, and therefore we don't have access to the resources that um, some of the other big causes have out there. So my organization is really trying to, to sort of not only raise that awareness, but also to, to raise funds that we can send um, to the groups that are, that are really at the front lines doing great work. So we set up uh, the Pangolin Crisis Fund last year as a, a mechanism to raise um, money to, to support conservation for pangolins. And what's cool is that it's been well received. Um, more and more people are wanting to get on board and, and, and help out. And so people can, can make a donation and we ensure that that a hundred percent of that donation goes directly to the most effective projects and, and organizations doing pangolin conservation work. But we, we definitely need more help. And uh, what are the ways to support you um, in terms of um, if, if there's an organization or even individuals that want to um, help the cause? Uh, what is the main way to do that? So, so for sure, the, the most critical thing we need at this point is funding. So if people can uh, make a donation, then that is absolutely amazing. Uh, people can make a donation online at savepangolins.org. Um, and then beyond that, given the low awareness rates of pangolins, honestly, spreading the word is a very effective thing that anybody can do to help. So, you know, people just talking to their friends that pangolins are out there and that they are threatened. Um, you know, sharing our social media, posting about it, it, it really does make a difference. And I think another thing that I want to point out is that we are currently living in a bit of an infodemic as much as a pandemic, in that there's a lot of, a lot of false information out there circulating um, about the origins of, of COVID-19 and things like that. And I think it's really important for people to, to make sure that the news that they're following is accurate. Um, and we, we try to keep keep the most accurate information about pangolins on our website. Um, so that's another another important point. So I, I think just as a final question um, to, to wrap this up is is an important one. Um, and we're, we won't go too deep into this because I think we're going to touch on this more in the uh, in the conference, which we want to make sure we we kind of mentioned here too, um, as we, as we, as we wrap things up, but, uh, so the, the link to COVID-19, um, Paul, the, you know, this is sort of potentially right. A, a tipping point, uh, for the increased awareness is already happening. Um, it's a, it's a confusing narrative because there are so many theories out there and, um, you know, we are probably a long ways away from having definitive fact on where the actual origin is that all sides agree to and all parties agree to. We may never actually get to that place, frankly. Um, and, but it's certainly, you know, in the in the sort of 
possibilities and 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 that has you know led to some mainstream articles about pangolins and just a little more a little more awareness of it um what how do you view this this as a potential tipping point for that awareness how can it how can it go you know good how could it go bad as well um uh for pangolins and what's your just general reaction to uh, and what have you seen as somebody who's an expert in the space, who I'm sure is being called upon frequently around this question, around this connection to, to COVID-19? Um, how is this going to impact pangolins going forward? So I will never forget the morning I woke up to my phone just completely blowing up because it was the day that some Chinese researchers announced that COVID-19 was originating from a pangolin. And so of course that catapulted pangolins into the international spotlight. It's been a really interesting story since that day back in February. Um, and I'm excited to like really get into this more during our, our um, pangolin virtual conference at the end of the month. But what is interesting, so he, there's a lot that we know and there's a lot that we don't know. So what we do know is that COVID-19 um, was originating from a wild animal. So bats are a reservoir for the virus, for a family of viruses called coronaviruses. And COVID-19 originated from that animal. But what is required is an intermediary animal that passes the virus from bats to humans. And currently, we do not know with 100% certainty what that intermediate host animal was. So it was originally announced that it could very likely have been a pangolin. And there have been various studies to look at that. Now, we don't know with 100% certainty because specimens from the Wuhan wet market were not collected in time. So we don't know exactly the origins. Um, but what we do know is that pangolins do carry coronaviruses, right? The, the, the family of viruses that includes COVID-19. We just don't know for sure if pangolins passed the that COVID-19 to people. And now how could they have done that? There, it, it's, it's entirely possible that they could have because the, um, as people consume pangolins illegally, so, so it could very well be that somebody was trading pangolins illegally through that Wuhan market. And when pangolins were either present or butchered or in some way people were infected um, from a pangolin in that Wuhan market. But again, we don't know fully. Um, it could also be that some a, a pangolin smuggler or trader who had come into contact with a, a sick pangolin at some point was, you know, simply present in that Wuhan market um, and could have passed it that way. There's a lot of theories out there. Uh, more recently, the whole thing has been politicized. And now there's a lot of speculation about um, you know, whether, whether the, the COVID-19 came from an animal that was previously held in a laboratory in Wuhan, we don't know. Some politicians are making bold statements. Um, 
potentially for political gain, but we we don't have the evidence yet. And James, like you said, we might never know. But um, it's it's certainly a, a fascinating story, and it does leave us with a very very powerful message going forward. Because what we do know is that at the end of the day, if we do not eat pangolins then we are a whole lot safer from the risks of potentially getting the next pandemic, right? We do know that that COVID-19 and other coronaviruses and other epidemics and pandemics like MERS and SARS and Ebola all come from wild animals. So if we stop consuming wild animals like pangolins, then, then we're a whole lot safer going forward. Yep. And I think there's, there's a lot we're going to dig into in a future podcast about uh, the challenges of, of, of doing that, right. Ending, ending consumption and, and, and also making sure the alternatives are introduced to the people that do rely on these, like these, commercial market, sorry, financially. Um, otherwise, you know, it can just go to the black market and be even harder to, to track and pin down. So um, the, I think often people think, well, it's a, it's like a button you have to just press or a switch you turn off and like, why don't we just turn off the wildlife trafficking switch? Um, but it's a very complex human issue that requires solutions coming from a lot of different places all at once in order to actually put an end to it. Um, it's absolutely right. It's going to be a, a real, really a holistic approach to tackling this. And um, what's cool is at our at our upcoming virtual conference, uh, we're going to have a, a quite a cool group of speakers touching on different aspects of that. Yeah. So just to plug that is before you wrap up here, um, we are putting on a virtual conference, uh, for all things pangolin from May 26th and to, and until June 1st. And Paul and his organization are, um, sort of, uh, the keynote presenters of, uh, this conference, but we have folks from really all over the world, from, um, several continents and organizations all working to support the species, uh, really eight, the eight, pangolin species, um, at this, uh, at, at, through this conference and, um, uh, tickets are going to be free for everybody to, to join and attend and share. Um, and then, you know, donations are obviously welcome to, uh, to Paul's organization and the other partners working on it, but we will plug that in the link to the podcast and you'll be hearing that from Animalia's social, uh, newsletter, all, all things in the, in the weeks ahead. So, um, look forward to that. And, and Paul, thanks for, thanks for, uh, being a part of that. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Any, yeah, any, uh, Annalie Nari, any sort of, uh, last, uh, last well wishes for the, the, the beloved pangolin? No, I just uh, wanted to say that really excited about the conference and, uh, before it was going to be a, um, in-person event and now everybody from all over the world can plug into it because it's a virtual event so um that's a positive effect of the situation we're in so really excited about it i don't have to fly to la and i can participate from london absolutely i'm i'm really excited to see um all of the conversations and and to just get the word out there awareness and action well, thanks, guys. I really wish there were more companies like you that are that are really doing cool things for the planet. So thank you. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody.